because in theory I can see all kinds of things that should do this or should do that, and the reality is they don't. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Hey, Rod here at A Better Way to Farm, where we strive to bring extra yield and extra profit to your operation. Today, let's talk biologicals. I was recently reading something over here on the computer just a little bit ago, and it said that just a few short years ago, about four years ago, that there was just under a billion dollars spent on biostimulants. About $0.68 billion was the number they gave. They were projecting that by 2024, which is just next year, to rise to $1.4 billion. Now, there's a lot of things that are driving that. Higher grain prices, a little bit of margin, you know, are making this better. You guys are getting some more money out of your corn, so there's a whole lot of companies that are out here going, hey, let's produce a new product that has a pretty good margin on it. And we're seeing those come in left and right. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about biologicals, there's a lot of different things that are out there with it. A recent survey from about a year ago in Farm Journal was talking about biologicals, and it was interesting to hear what everybody's opinion was. And I thought it was interesting. There were about 40% of them said, hey, I need more information before I'm going to use them. About a third of them said, hey, I see a good potential in using these biologicals. 4% said, nope, there ain't no way. I don't see a benefit at all. And about a fifth of them said, hey, I don't know, but uh, you know, I'm just going to take a look and wait and see here as to what happens. And so that kind of got me off and running thinking, well, let's talk about the biologicals, what do they do, what are they, and how do they impact us? The industry would break these down into three things. Number one, they're going to talk about PGRs or plant growth regulators. Number two, they're going to talk about some kind of bug, some kind of bacteria, some kind of fungus, something that we apply out there that's uh, bugs in a jug. And then number three, they kind of subset will go with some kind of humic acid, fulvic acid, and or sugar. And we're going to get into the first two out of these today and talk a little bit about them. So let's start with bugs. Let's start with bacteria. You know, it's interesting. I've been working in this industry for a really long time. I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he said, talk to me about how long you've been doing this. And I said, well, I spent 10 years in the seed corn industry on the production side of things, and then I gravitated into what we do now, and this is going to be, I believe, our 31st growing season here. We're super excited to get to do that. And during that time frame, I've had one mentor in particular that I love and appreciate very much. I feel like he is the individual who has profoundly impacted me. And I think that I would look at uh, Neil Kinsey. I would look at, you know, some of these guys, Dr. Albrecht, who are tremendously smart people. And then this individual that's a friend of mine who has tutored me for the last 32 years. Uh, some days I think he wants to give up, but he keeps trying. And I know I've learned so much from Denny. And the fact of this is, that he's talked about my whole career about bugs in a jug. And it's interesting because Denny has always said that if we put more than one kind of strain of bacteria in a jug or in a container in the soil, that oftentimes what we find is we don't really get a result. What we get is just these bugs fighting one another, trying to figure out which one's superior. He always equated it to a bunch of 14-year-olds at recess trying to figure out who the dominant one was. And until they get that sorted out, really nothing much happens. Then you get your team captain's pick and you can kind of get on with things, but you got to sort that out. 
We see this in a lot of ways. And guys, make no mistake, I would love to come up with a product. I would love to find a product that's got a whole different bunch of bugs in one jug that would do wondrous things for you. Because the bottom line is, it doesn't matter about the theory. It doesn't matter about the idea behind it. Because in theory, I can see all kinds of things that should do this or should do that. And the reality is they don't. And we've seen a lot of these products. I mean, we've tried all kinds of different things. We tested a product several years ago. It was called, it was an earthworm food. And in theory, it was fantastic. It was going to drastically increase the number of earthworms in the soil. We were going to get a big yield response. And literally, when they laid it out for me, it made total sense. But before I would go to the company, I wanted to prove it to myself. And we ran it three years in a row in exactly the same place. And after the end of the third year, I don't know if we had more earthworms or not because we didn't count them. However, what I do know was we got zero response and yield. And at that point in time, that product was $14 an acre. And I can't come to market with something, no matter how good the theory is, that's 14 bucks an acre that doesn't bring you at least $28 back into your operation. And so we see these things. We see bugs in a jug where someone will get creative and they'll try to put a whole bunch in there. And our experience would indicate that Denny was right, that when we do this, we actually don't get as much benefit as we might perhaps from just having one bug in the jug. Let me give you some examples. I see people out here who are marketing a bacteria for different things. One of them would be silage inoculant. And so they go after the idea that we're going to have more bacteria in our silage inoculant than you are. And so they just put literally millions and millions of bacteria in there. But instead of using the bacteria that you need to inoculate silage, they just pick any old bacteria that they can find that's cheap. And that way they can have their count way up. So when they come to say, it's like, look, I got four times more bacteria than the guy down the street, maybe. But the guy down the street's got the most bacteria that are beneficial for inoculating silage. We see this in the treatment for soybeans. We have a soybean treatment product. It's a live rhizobium bacteria. And here's what we know. Soybeans need one strain of this to make it work. And the strain is Brady Rhizobium Chiponium 532C. Now, we've seen a lot of other labels out there, and they might have more bacteria than we do. But what we've ran across is they don't have all 532C. And the only strain that we have ever seen have an effect on the nodulation and improve that nodulation in those soybeans is the 532C. And so consequently, that's the one that we're going to come to market with. We test others. We look at others. As a matter of fact, one of the things was I saw a label here a while back, and it, it said that their soybean inoculant was a GMO. And, you know, GMOs are really polarizing. And it's interesting because there's one group of people who hate anything and everything GMO. They hate things that aren't GMO because they think they are. We got lit up a couple years ago because we sold GMO nitrogen. And if you're in the right mood, that'll make you laugh because you guys know there's no genetically modified nitrogen. There's just nitrogen. And so that was interesting. And, and then you got the other group of people who are at the other extreme, and they believe if it is a GMO, then it's got to be the greatest thing in the world. And I think like everything else in life, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And in regards to these soybean inoculants that have a genetically modified organism in them and they've got yes they've got some 532c in there because they know that's what works and then they've got some others that they have bred up to put in there but we haven't ever seen them come up with any kind of a yield increase 
And so it's interesting as we look at these things and we get after this idea of the bugs in a jug, we need to think about what we're doing. We need to say, okay, how's this going to impact us? How's this going to impact our soil long term? Are we doing the right thing? And have we seen someone, say like a Bex, doing independent research come up with a positive result? I'm very fond of non-funded independent research, and especially in regards to the world of biologicals. I'm going to switch out of the idea of bugs or bacteria, and I'm going to spend some more time on the PGRs, the plant growth regulators, if you will. And you know, it's interesting because some of us, there's a group of people who well, I don't know what a plant growth regulator is. Well, actually, yes, everyone does. I think anyone and everyone involved in agriculture understands what 2,4-D is. It's a weed chemical, but it's actually a plant growth regulator, a PGR. And so what it does is it provides or it mimics, it actually mimics the natural oxen activity. And what does it do? It makes a plant grow itself to death. So we introduce this plant growth regulator and it makes the plant literally grow itself until it dies. So that would be the first PGR that probably most of us ever had anything to do with. Now there are a lot of other PGRs that are out here that are used and, and used well. For instance, ethylene, that's a PGR. What does it do? Well, it speeds ripening. So oftentimes when the fruit or the veggies are coming in from a distant land, they pick them way green, they get them here into a warehouse, and they introduce, they fumigate with ethylene, and that speeds up the ripening process so your tomatoes are red and not green. Some of us might be familiar with abscisic acid. That's what makes leaves drop off. And so sometimes there might be an opportunity there to come in and, and apply that and kind of speed up the process of the leaves coming off of the plant to speed up some maturity. So there are different things that we can do. Those are not the ones that I want to spend my time on. Today I want to talk predominantly about auxins. I want to talk about gibberellins, and I want to talk about cytokinins. Now, guys, this whole deal of PGR, you know, PGRs, PGRs, plant growth regulators, it's really a buzzword, and some people are really attracted to it because it's new. It's sexy, and it's new, and they want to go after that new sexy thing, and sometimes we need to study it before we launch off into it. There are a lot of things that have been new that didn't necessarily work out. I think there are some things that are new on the market right now that we're still trying to figure out if they're going to work or not. And as we look at these, the first one I want to talk about are the auxins. Now, auxins are really important because one of the things that they do is they handle all of the tropisms in a plant, such things as phototropism. In other words, we make that shoot grow up so it grows towards the light. They control and regulate gravitropism. That's gravity. So when the, the root comes out, it knows to go down. And the quicker we can do that, that's important. I've got a friend, Josh, out in Nebraska, and they're working on some deals out there and taking a look at some different things and talking about how to make that seed go into the ground so it's the root is pointed down from the moment that it germinates. And that's a good thing. But having these auxins in here will help with that and make it more effective. There are other auxins that will come in and we can Maybe take a look at regulating heliotropism, which would be where something like, say, a sunflower that will follow the sun, you know, and if we can teach a soybean, perhaps, to do that same thing, then there might be some serious consequences from that that are positive that we would love. There are several other tropisms I'm not going to go into that are all regulated by those, but let's talk about how the auxins come in and have a role in that gravitropism. You know, if that auxin comes in and it tells that root, 
to grow down and it tells that shoot to go up to the soil surface, then we're going to have a faster emerging plant. We're going to have a healthier plant. And the bottom line is when we do this, these cells called amoplasts settle in with the gravity to the bottom side of the root and that releases that auxin, which points that root downward. And so it's really important to help out. Now, another thing that auxins might do, perhaps if you take a look at them, what they do above the ground, as I said, they make the shoots grow up. So let's say we had a crop that fell over, a big wind came in or whatever, and all of a sudden we want to get that corn to be not so lodged. Now, is it ever going to stand straight up? Absolutely not. But can we get it to gooseneck and come back up? Yes. Does it do it naturally on its own? Sometimes, you know, I've seen corn blow over when we were working in production seed corn. Sometimes it was awful the the conditions that those fields would be in when we caught a windstorm. And a lot of times they would gooseneck and come back up. But what if we could add some auxins to it and make them do it better, make them do it faster, make that plant take off and growing straight up? There would be great value in that. And that's some of the things that we can take a look at and do. I talked about abscisic acid and what it does and how it makes a plant lose its leaves, you know, in the fall or deciduous trees. They come out, they have this abscisic acid that is formed, it comes out, and it makes all the leaves drop off. And when that happens, of course, they fall, and the plant kind of goes dormant and kind of goes to sleep. Well, there are some things in here in a tree that's fine, but sometimes in our plants, what we want to do is we want to hang on to those leaves as long as we possibly can to help pack starch, to help make maturities, to help add test weight. And so there was a study that was done on this leaf obsession by Harvard. And what they figured out was that if there were higher levels of auxins, then we had less of the leaves falling off. That somehow that like overpowered the abscisic acid or whatever it did, I don't know. But what I do know is the leaves hung on longer. And there was a second study that was found that said if you applied auxin to the surface of a leaf, maturity was delayed. And guys, let me say this. I don't think that there's a one size fits all in anything. You know I don't like one-size-fits-all agriculture because I think that we have to make allocations and allowances for, you know, different geographic areas, for different operations, and find out what works in there. No different than just one PGR working everywhere. You know, and I think sometimes we do the farmer and injustice in the industry. We try something, and it works really good right here on my farm in southeast Iowa, but we don't test it somewhere else before we go to market. And sometimes, and I'll get into this in a little bit, we can actually draw the wrong conclusion and really hurt somebody in a different environment. And so we're going to talk about that here as we go on. But the idea of being able to delay maturity can be a good thing. Now, it also can be a bad thing. You know, if we're up north and there's a big frost coming and we've done two or three things to really push that growing season out, make it real long, and we get frosted, that's not good. But if we're not so far up north and we can get a little later maturity on that crop and we can pack in more test weight, we can get more yield, those would be great things. And so we would want to consider those and think about how maybe that oxen could fit into that and we would go forward with that idea. I want to also talk about gibberellins. Gibberellins, perhaps you're familiar with the name Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug was a plant breeder who came from Iowa. Uh, there are great things that he has still done because of his foundation that he set up. And I know every year kids from high school in Iowa get to go and, and be a Borlaug scholar. And it's really cool to, to attend that and see what happens and how they interest kids in agriculture. But he just had a passion for making a difference. 
And what he really worked on was the height of wheat. Now, gibberellums are always going to impact plant height. And so what happens is one of the first studies that we saw here that we were looking at was they took corn and they bred it to be a dwarf. And as soon as they applied gibberellins, they reversed that whole thing of the dwarfism and got it to grow taller. So let's talk about where would gibberellums be a good thing? Well, maybe in rice, we might like to get that to be taller early on. Maybe we've got some crops that we would like to have cell elongation and make more of the plant grow. However, we might want to be cautious with that. You know, Borlaug, what he did, what he figured out was how to get wheat to not get so tall. Because if we have wheat that gets really tall, then we have wheat that really goes down, and then we lose anything that we gained. And so putting a gibberellic acid on your wheat would not be the right thing. Again, not every product works in every application. For instance, within us, we have a product that has gibberellic acid and has auxins in it. It's a fantastic product. One of the prime places we wouldn't want you to use it, we would not want you to use it on wheat. We would not want you to use it on soybeans if you're far enough south that you have a problem with your soybeans getting too tall. Nothing is more beautiful in late August than five and a half foot tall soybeans. Dark green, looking beautiful, and you go, wow, that's fantastic. And that same crop that was beautiful on August 20th, when you go out to cut it on October 20th, and all of a sudden those beans have fallen over and lodged, and now that five foot six soybean is six inches off the ground, and you're cutting them one direction, and you're fighting it, and you're getting dirt in your header, and it's miserable. And so we would want to say, okay, this would not be a place to use this product with jib acid in it because it's not going to help us in any form or fashion. Let's talk about how gibberellin might help in seed germination. You know, the bottom line is we're all aware of the fact that a seed has to take water in. And until it takes water in, nothing's going to happen. What happens when that water comes in is that actually triggers the release of gibberellic acid into the endosperm of that seed. The gibberellic acid is going to activate an enzyme in there that's going to convert starch into sugar. And so what happens is this is the energy that triggers that plant to emerge. And when we do that, if we can add some and we can get some more energy, then we can get a better emergence and get it to work faster and get it to come up and be more aggressive when it's growing. As we look at the gibberellins, as we look at the oxins, we just want to make sure that we're applying them in a manner that is best for the grower. And we do have a product. If you're excited about giving it a try, give it a look, reach out to us. One of the great things that it did, this particular product on a study done by Bex, increased silage. We used it at a 2x rate, or we didn't. They did. They used it at a 2x rate. And when they were growing silage, they picked up an extra three ton to the acre for a little less than eight bucks. And so when you can pick up three ton of silage for an $8 bill, that's a pretty good opportunity. They also studied it and it went on through. And not only did they get more silage, they got better silage. And so the cows that were fed this chopped corn did better and produced more milk. If they took it into the feedlot, the steers gained better and finished quicker and had a better rate of gain and a better feed conversion. So there's a lot of things that you can do when you start using things like gibberellins and auxins. I want to switch gears and I want to talk about another plant growth regulator, and that would be our product that has the cytokinins in it. 
Cytokinins are a tremendous, tremendous thing. What it does is it's a natural occurring plant hormone that makes plants, makes cells divide faster. And when those cells divide faster, we end up with a lot of extra growth. In other words, we can get extra roots and we can get extra shoots and we can get a broader leaf and we can end up with more fruit set. And when we get to more fruit set, that works for us in making us more money. Now, as we stimulate that cell division, we end up with just more cells. The faster they can grow, the faster they can divide and reproduce is fantastic. We know that cytokinins are also involved. They help with plant defense responses and they help with plant defense mechanisms. In other words, by applying extra cytokinins, sometimes we can make our plant healthier and keep it from being sick. Uh, and guys, I want to say this about all of these. We're seeing a lot of producers of these types of products come out and they make a lot of claims. And I want you to be crystal clear. I am not in any way saying any of this replaces fertility. Because when someone comes out and goes, I got four ounces of this or two ounces of that or two pounds of this, and it's going to replace 70 pounds of nitrogen. It's going to replace 100 pounds of phosphorus. It's going to replace 200 pounds of potassium. I really want to walk slowly there. And there are none of these things that I'm talking about today that would even begin to be a replacement for your fertility program. As a matter of fact, we want a good fertility program underneath that plant in order to make these things work better. And that's super important. You know, another thing that happens is if you get some kind of a problem within a field, cytokinins can be your friend. For instance, you know, if we can send the cytokinins, if we can send those are automatically sent into the area of most rapid development. In other words, it's going to go to new leaves and it's going to go to root tips. Well, the root tips are important because the more the root grows, the more we feed the mycorrhiza, the more extraction of nutrients, the more uptake of moisture can we get. And that's what we're after. So that's a great thing. Obviously, if it's sent to the new leaves and then they grow faster, then we get more leaves to get more sunlight. But let's talk about a catastrophe. A couple of years ago, we were up in Minnesota, gone for a while. And when we got up there, the guy who was helping us on the farm sent us a picture about the third day after we were gone in June. And it was a picture of our cornfield that when we left was up over our shoulders and leafed out and gorgeous. And three days later, we had a whole bunch of stalks that were less than shoulder tall. And it literally hailed and knocked the leaves off. So what we did was we waited a few days, 10 days or so, and let there get to be some regrowth because you got to have some way to catch it. And then we came in and we hit that with a foliar feed and we used some micronutrients that are specifically beneficial in helping fight disease and, and plant regeneration. We used a little bit of fertilizer because things go into the plant better in the presence of a complete NPK. And we used a cytokine and product. Why did we do that? Because we wanted to help that plant get as healthy as it could and get as regenerated as fast as it could. And that's why we went after the cytokine and product. And it worked very well. Strangely enough, we were able to harvest a fairly significant crop off of that field when it really did just look completely hopeless. Another thing that cytokinins can do is they can help battle against SCN. As we look at the soybean cyst nematode, and we know that, you know, basically soybean cyst nematodes are asexual. When they first hatch out of the egg, they can either be a male or a female. 
And so those that become female are the ones that are really problematic. You know, they tap into the plant. They actually drill through and get into the phloem, which is what lets the sugar go from the lower part of the plant to the new part of the plant so we can get that energy going. we got to have that movement. And when that soybean cyst nematode drills a hole into that and it starts sucking it off, it's just literally a parasite. And one of the couple, three things that happen when you apply cytokinins is, number one, it makes the plant healthier and it makes that root beefier and it makes it more difficult to penetrate. It would appear, based on research that was done at Purdue, that these asexual soybean cyst nematodes actually do get to determine which sex they're going to be. And in the presence of an invader, they tend to become male. And the work that was done was pretty significant. They said where the cytokinin was applied, they had a negative count on soybean cyst nematodes of the female persuasion by 61%. In other words, the number of females that could lay eggs significantly decreased. The number of males that were in there drastically increased. It went up about 79%. And so as we look at that, by shifting that population to male, we end up with a lot less offspring of the next generation. As you guys know, a soybean cyst nematode, they just breed and breed and breed. And, you know, one becomes 50 and 50 becomes 5,000 and 5,000 becomes a lot. And so if we can keep those females from forming and having those eggs, we can really cut back on the offspring that we're going to have. And guys, let me say this. This is not going to fix SCN. I don't want you to think that at all. It's just part of a good management plan to take a look at as we're doing this. So cytokinins have a lot of advantages, bigger leaves, bigger roots, more fruit set. They do a lot of things. Let's review a little bit on the auxins and the gibberellic acid. So you're going to get out of your auxins, you're going to get cell elongation. You're going to get more root growth. You're going to get a plant that's better at its tropisms, in particular, knowing that it needs to go down with the root, knowing that it needs to go up towards the sunlight. You're going to get a plant that has some resistance to that abscisic acid. In other words, we're going to hang on to the leaves longer. They're not going to fall off quite as quick. Now, as we look at the gibberellic acid, that you know, when you start looking at that hormone from gibberellum, all of a sudden you're going to get stock and stem elongation. And that's great if we're trying to grow a taller corn plant and get more sunlight. Perhaps, again, I should recapture the idea that we wouldn't want to use this where we have soybeans that are getting too tall on us. We know that gibberellic acid is necessary for the germination. And when we're going to use that to help break that seed dormancy, that's a great place to put it on. We know that gibberellic acid is very involved in flower production. And it really helps that plant know to switch from the vegetative to the reproductive stage. Obviously, in a soybean, we really don't want a whole bunch of vegetative growth. We very quickly want it to go into the reproductive stage and stop growing tall and start making beans. Start setting pods. Have a bunch of nodes. Put a bunch of pods on them. Put a bunch of beans inside the pod. Make the bean bigger. We also know that gerelic acid does help determine leaf size and leaf area. And when we can get that bigger leaf, one of my good friends, Bill Darrington, when I was first working with him and he went out and he showed me the advantages of just using zinc, where we applied zinc in addition to starter as opposed to just having the starter, the leaf was significantly bigger. And that's our factory. And so anything we can do to increase that leaf size is our friend and we're going to get after it. Guys, I could do hours on the plant growth regulators. And we're probably going to dive into them a little further and do some stuff down the road. But I wanted to do an introduction today because you guys are going to go to farm shows. You're going to have people hit your driveway. 
and they're going to tell you that they've got some kind of a biostimulant. They're going to tell you they've got some kind of a biological product, and they've got some kind of a deal that you just need to have because they're all wonderful. And guys, I just want you to have some basic ideas of what it's going to do. If they come to you and they get to talking about, well, you know, we got a lot of gibberellic acid in here and this is going to do wonderful things for you and they're trying to sell it to you on your soybeans, you need to say, ah, wait a minute, I think that's going to make it too tall, you know, and we want to make sure we're using it in judicious amounts. I, I've heard the story here recently of someone who thought that this was going to be a wonderful product and he got this, our product that had gib acid and some auxins in it, endobutyric acid that has auxins in it. And he over-applied it in a greenhouse, and he literally killed everything in there. No different than using a 2,4-D and making it grow itself to death. Overuse is not going to be your friend. And so we want to make sure we're using it exactly the right amount in amounts that have been tested, using products that have been tested, so we can get the results that we're really after. I appreciate your time on this, guys. It's always a pleasure to get the chance to talk to you. Hey, by the way, we've down to just a handful of our Fundamentals of Agronomy Training. And if you're interested in going to one of those, you need to hit us up. We've got a lot of people that have reached out. If that's for you, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. Guys, we do appreciate you. I pray that you have a wonderful 2023. And we will hope that we can bring a little bit of information here that will give you some snapshot as to how you can do a little bit better, be a little bit more informed. I hope all of you are really having a better day. A better way to farm.com. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.